All right, let's pray together, if you will. Lord, this morning we we thank you for, as Randy mentioned, new life, new birth. And Lord, we know that so many are anticipating that. Several who are becoming parents, maybe for the first time or again. And so, Lord, we thank you for the gift of new life, the gift of birth. Lord, we we thank you not only for physical life, but Lord for the new birth that we have in Jesus Christ. So, Lord, we celebrate this morning the gift of salvation. And, Lord, as we turn to your word, we pray that your will would be done in our hearts and in our minds. That, Lord, you would interrupt us, whether we're young or old or somewhere in between, whether we've been in church a long time or this is our first Sunday, whether we feel like we know it all or we know nothing. Lord, speak to our hearts and to our minds this morning. We give you praise as the creator of this universe, as the only one true God. And we lift you up this morning. And you said when you are high and lifted up that you would draw us to yourself. So please, Lord, draw us close this morning as we look at your word. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. The other day, my youngest son, Duke, who's five now, he's he's been in preschool now for a couple of years. He came home and, and he... He was repeating a phrase over and over and over that most of us have repeated at some point in our lives. And he he wasn't saying it for any reason in particular other than I guess he had heard it. And it was liar, liar, pants on fire. Over and over and over and over. No matter what you said, liar, liar, pants on fire. So you know I have five-year-olds, are they drive you nuts with it. And it wouldn't stop. And so liar, liar, pants on fire. Apparently somebody at school had said something that wasn't true. And so it's liar, liar, pants on fire. And maybe you remember when you were when you were younger, or maybe this still goes around. I don't know, but when it you know I cross my heart and hope to die. What's the last part? Stick a needle in my eye. I mean that's just painful. I mean that's just awful. But but that was the promise you made. You know, cross my heart. You know, I hope to die. And stick a needle in my eye. You know, if I'm not telling the truth, then you know I hope that I'll die, and and maybe somebody will stick that needle in my eye. You know, even as kids, maybe you remember wanting to believe what people said. You wanted their word to be true and for them to do what they promised under penalty of death or pants on fire or needle in the eye or something. They were going to pay for it if they were not true to their word. And the thing about it is, of course, to kids, everything's a promise. Even a maybe. Even a we'll see or go talk to your mom or something. Everything is a promise. Well, you said. No, I didn't say. I just said maybe one day we'll think about going to Dairy Queen, you know, for ice cream. No, you said today, right now, we're going. That's not, you know, that's not what you said. But it's interesting how even from a young age, and we're all still like this to some degree, there's something built into us that that wants what people say, say to matter. There, there's something built into me that when Mark tells me something, I want it to be, he's, he's going to be faithful to his work. And there's something built into Max over here that if I tell him something, he wants it to be true. And for all of us, it's the same way. Whatever you're told, you want someone to keep their word. We believe in our hearts and somewhere built into us that promises should be kept. That someone's word should be honored. And it bothers us, doesn't it? It bothers us when somebody goes back on their word. When they break a promise. When they don't do what they said they were going to do, or when they do what they said they would never do. We we believe we should be able to keep someone at their word. 
But it's seemingly rare these days. Some of you have been around a long time and you pine away for the good old days. You know what one of the things about the good old days was? That as the the great theologians, the group Alabama said, a man's good word and a handshake are all you need. You know, down home, that's what we want. For that to be enough, let me shake your hand, look you in the eye, and I'm going to tell you the truth, and that ought to be enough. And for some of us, it still is. You're still good for your word. But we live in a world that is not, don't we? People do what they're going to do because they want to do it, and it doesn't matter if they told you they would or would do something, would not do something different. Whatever happened to people keeping their promises? I wonder, does anybody keep their word anymore? You ever wonder that? The series that we're starting today is called I Promise. And it's not a series about a bunch of human commitments. What it's a series about is God's commitment to us. Because there is one, and only one, who has always kept his word. There is only one. And that's what this series is about. We're going to look over the next few weeks about the different promises of God, the covenants that He has made with His people through the years and how He's always kept up His end of the deal. And so we're going to take an overall look at really the thread of God's promise through the Scripture because beginning in Genesis and all the way through Revelation, there's a thread that God has always made promises and there's also the confirmation that He's always kept His Word. So we're going to look today at God's promises that He made at creation. We'll look at what God said after the, the fall of man, after sin. We'll see what God's promises were at the flood with Noah. We'll see God's promises that He made to Abraham and his descendants. We'll look at what God did at the Exodus and through the giving of the law at Mount Sinai. We'll see His promises to King David and his family. We'll see the promises of redemption and restoration that were fulfilled in Jesus Christ. And we'll look also at how no threat ever, no threat to the promises could ever stop God from keeping His Word. God is faithful. And that'll be the main message of this series. Over and over and over, I want to remind you that God is faithful. God is faithful. He's faithful to what He promised no matter what, even when we're not. And that's really the secondary message. God is faithful and we're not. That may sound like bad news, and I guess in some ways it is. That may sound condescending, and I guess in some ways it can be received as condemnation, but the truth is God is faithful and we're not. And that's the message we need to hear because if we're counting on ourselves, then we're counting on people who don't keep their word. And so in your life, if you want someone, if you want to bank your life and you want to build your foundation on someone who always keeps his word, then you've got one option, and that's Jesus Christ. That's it. And that's going to be the message of this series. And so in this series, hopefully we'll get to know our Heavenly Father a little better and we'll have to recognize all too well our own selves. So today we'll look at God's promise at creation. I want you to turn with me to the very first verse in all the Bible. Genesis chapter 1, verse 1 is where we'll start today. I'm going to read the entire scripture to you today from Genesis 1-1 all the way through Revelation 21. So but I'm just joking. Is anybody awake? I'm just seeing. All right, we've got a few folks. <clears throat> wonder how long that would take. You know, it's a fact. Can you fast forward? Can you? Anyway, this is where it all began. Now, I'll just, just let you know that there's really, there's no formal covenant that is established in Genesis 1 through 3. You'll see in the Bible different times where God establishes a very formalized covenant. With Abraham, we see that he cut pieces of different animals and he walked between those. That was the way that they signed an agreement back then. And so this, this is not going to be exactly a formal covenant, but I think it's implied that between God and Adam, the first man, 
there was a basic understanding of how the relationship was to go. There was an agreement. I will do this and you will do this. And this is the way that we will operate in relationship. And so here's what we'll get from the very beginning. Look at verse 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now, everything after this is an outworking of that. His authority over his creation. His will for, for what he created. The creation of humans is later described as his mo- most unique of all. And just, just as a side note. Although we were created in succession right after different plants and animals and so on, we are separate and unique and different from all of God's other creation. Now, we're interconnected, certainly, because we live here. But just so you know, humans cannot be reduced to the value of something less than God's most special and unique creation. We can't. And that's important to know. Because if you view yourself as no more important than the trees and the shrubs around, then guess what? You don't matter. Because one day, as the Bible says, they're growing. The next day, they're cut down and thrown into the fire. If you view yourself as no more important than your pets, then you have no eternal destiny whatsoever. You cannot be redeemed by Jesus Christ if you are no more valuable than they are. You have to view yourself. We have to view humanity as God's most special creation. Because it is with humans that God makes covenants. It is humans who are created, it says, in God's image. Nothing else was created in God's image. And it is with human representation that he administers his covenants throughout the ages. The message and covenant from creation to revelation is very simple. From the very beginning, when God created the heavens and the earth, he established the overall covenant of all the Bible, the overall promise, the overall message of all the Bible. And it's very simple. You'll see it there on your outline. The first part is, I will be your God. And the second part is, you will be my people. That's the overall message, the overall promise of the Bible. When God created humans, he said, I will be your God. And the, the, the agreement was, you will be my people. Now, he formalizes this later when he gets to Abraham and other folks. But this is from, from creation to revelation. That's what God was doing. I will be your God. You will be my people. That's the agreement. From creation, when he creates all of humanity, when he creates the first man, and then from there, we, we're fruitful and multiply. I will be your God, you will be my people. That is the most basic covenant promise, that is the most basic covenant agreement in all of Scripture. And it has never changed. It's not changed. It came before law, it came before government, it came before everything else. I will be your God, you will be my people. By the very act of creation, God said to us, I am your God. And by creating us, you are my people. That's God's will from the beginning, to be in an uninterrupted relationship with his most precious creation. And before sin entered the picture in Genesis chapter 3, everything was right with the world. Everything was right between God and humanity. We're going to focus there today, before sin. What was it that God established? How was it all to go from the very beginning? What's the ideal picture? What did God want? How is it really supposed to be? How did he set it up from the beginning? And how will one day he make it all the same again? I will be your God. You will be my people. When you look at the the I will be your God part, you really in creation, you see two different roles that God sets up for himself. The first is to rule. God's role, first of all, is to rule. Now, I'll just be honest. this This is not a popular message today for a lot of people. When it comes to God's, God's in charge and he's going to rule, we don't really like that because we like to consider ourselves to be autonomous and our own people and I'm going to do what I want. But I'm convinced that it's a message I need to hear 
And it's a message that we need to hear that God's role and His alone is to rule. It says in verse 1, in the beginning, what? God created. God created the heavens. So who sets Himself up as the ruler of everything created? God. does not say that God created man and said, hey, I'm going to make you equal with me and we're going to rule all this as equals. No, 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 no. God created the heavens and the earth. The entire universe is His kingdom. All of it. The Bible presents Him as the only true God. And that's really a very distinguishing mark for our faith. We believe that God is the only, the one and only true God. That He is unique. He is holy. He is not part of creation. He is the uncreated Creator. And He alone, as a result of that, is to be worshipped. He alone is to be trusted. He alone is to be obeyed. He alone is Creator and has the right to rule. Maybe today, you would say, you know what, I, for this, from this moment on, my commitment is simply to recognize God's right to rule in my life. And for some, that will be revolutionary. Because for some, we viewed ourselves as autonomous. Well, yeah, I know what God said, but you know, i got to do what i got to do. I wonder if today you just draw a line in the sand and say, you know what? Today, I will recognize from this point forward God's right to rule. Not only as creator does He have the right to rule, but He also gave some different commands. Flip over to chapter 2, verse 15. God not only creates, and, and that by default gives Him the right to rule, but He also begins to give commands. Look at verse 15. The Lord God took the man and placed him in the Garden of Eden to work it and watch over it. And the Lord God commanded the man, You are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for on the day you eat from it, you will certainly die. God said, Here's what you will do. From the very beginning, God does not make a deal and say, Well, you know, maybe if it's cool with you guys... I'll tell you some things, and if you're good with that, maybe you can follow, because it's really going to go better for you if you do. I mean, I, you know, I know how it is, because you don't want to be ruled by anybody. So these are really just strong suggestions that might help your life be a little better. That's not God's approach. He makes no apologies for commands. He makes no apologies for the fact that He rules. And we ought to be grateful that He makes no apologies. We don't have to wonder who's in control. We don't have to wonder, who do I turn to find absolute truth? We go straight to God himself. God has the right to rule by the fact that he created and that he gives commands and he alone has the right to do that. He said to Adam, you're free to eat from any tree of the garden but one. Don't eat from that one. Adam was to live in an all-consuming relationship with God. It was to control every part of his life and as a result be blessing to every part of his life. He was to obey because God had the right to rule. He was to obey because God had set the limits for what Adam was to do by God's commands. God had the right to rule. That's first and foremost. God's role is to rule. And maybe today, as I said, you just come to the point where you just kneel before the Lord and say, God, I recognize your rule. You are in charge, and I am not God. Secondly, God's role was to provide. And we say, oh my goodness, man, God, he's just, boy, he's hardcore. He just rules with an iron fist. Well, not completely. Because also, just in uh, as equal to his rule is his role to provide, and he does it so well. If you want to make some notes there, 
when I look at this Scripture, there are at least three things, and certainly more, but at least three categories that I see God providing at creation. The first is life. These won't be on the screen. The first is life. He, he, his role is to provide life. Only He can do it. He created life. Look at, look at uh, Genesis chapter 1. Look at verse 26. God said, let us make man in our image according to our likeness. They will rule the fish of the sea, the birds of the sky, the livestock, and all the earth, and all the creatures that crawl on the earth. Verse 27. So God created man in his own image. He created him in the image of God. He created them male and female. God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, and subdue it. Rule the fish of the sea, the birds of the sky, and every creature that crawls on the earth. And look at chapter 2, verse 7. Then the Lord God formed the man out of the dust from the ground and breathed the breath of life into his nostrils, and the man became a living being. God is the one who creates life. Without getting on my soapbox too much, if God is the God who creates life and he alone, then how dare we, how dare we in any way alter and mess with what he has created? How dare we? And I mean that very sincerely. How dare we view life as anything but precious and a gift from God? How dare we alter and change and destroy what God has created? And I don't know what exactly we'll be all held accountable for, but I guarantee you since God is God and He rules and He creates life, there will be an accounting for the lives that have been destroyed. There will be an accounting, whether that's in the womb, whether that's through murder, whatever it may be, there will be an accounting. And I'm not trying to put that on uh, heavy on us, but folks, there will be. He creates life, and it is precious to him. He breathed the breath of life into the first man. Not only did he create it, but he sustained it. Verse 28 of chapter 1. He said, God, it says, God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, and subdue it. Rule the fish of the sea, the birds of the sky, and every creature that crawls on the earth. Verse 29, God also said, Look, I've given you every seed-bearing plant on the surface of the entire earth and every tree whose fruit contains seed. This food will be for you, for all the wildlife of the earth, for every bird of the sky and every creature that crawls on the earth. Everything having breath of life in it, I have given, I have given every green plant for food, and it was so. God saw that all that he had made, and it was very good. God sustains life. The very breath that we have is a gift from God. I, I, maybe you've seen it. I saw uh, on Facebook or Twitter or somewhere uh, the little picture of you know the guy who says, what has God ever done for me? Says man breathing air. You know, I mean, that's, that's, that's it. What has God ever done for me? Well, your next breath is a gift from God. He sustains life. He says, be fruitful and multiply. Those who have been blessed with children, it is a gift from God. Look around. You are a gift from God to somebody. Be fruitful. Multiply. Fill the earth. God created life. He sustains life. And He also created it to be eternal. All of us will live forever somewhere. Look at chapter 2, verses 8 and 9. The Lord God planted a garden in, the, uh, in Eden in the east, and there He placed a man He formed. The Lord God caused to grow out of the ground every tree pleasing in appearance and good for food, including the tree of life in the middle of the garden as well as a tree of the knowledge of good and evil. If they had been allowed to remain in the garden, guess what? They'd keep eating from the tree of life, and they would have physically lived forever. That's what we can assume from that. God created life to be eternal. Your soul is eternal. Do you realize there's something about you that can't be reduced to just physical stuff? 
It can't be reduced to just biology or chemistry in your brain. There is an immaterial part of you that you can't explain, isn't there? It's who you are. And we know that there is something about each of us that is just us. It's not our bodies. It's not our features. It's us. It's something different. There is an immaterial part of us that will live forever. And no matter, no matter what your belief system is, no matter what the belief system is of the people that you talk to, they believe that there's something about them that's not visible. You can't see my personality going on on the inside. You can't see my thoughts. You can't see who I really am. There's something about us that is designed different from our bodies, which will one day return to the dust, one day to be resurrected if we're believers in Jesus, reunited with our souls to be forever with Him. But there is something about us that's immaterial, that's designed to live forever. God's role is to provide life. He created it, He sustained it, and He made it eternal. The second category of of what God's provision includes here is rest. Look at chapter 2, verse 1. So the heavens and the earth and everything in them were created, were completed. By the seventh day, God completed his work that he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. God blessed the seventh day and declared it holy, for on it he rested from his work of creation. Do you know why God rested? It wasn't because he's worn out. He spoke and it all came into being. He didn't wear him out. He rested because he was done. And he declared this is something good to say, you know what, I have completed the work that I am doing and I will rest and I will enjoy the work of my hands. God provided rest from the very beginning. Some of us are just flat worn out, ain't we? Just worn out. We work all the time. Well, how's everything going? Boy, I'm busy, just busy. Man, I'm worn out. Man, I've been working a lot of hours. I tell you what, man, just kids running me all over the place and you know, I just can't get a break. After meaningful labor, God rested. And it says from the very beginning, before the law, before the commandments, that he blessed the seventh day. He blessed the Sabbath and made it holy and rested and set a pattern that we should do the same. Do you realize that if we will in our lives set a day aside, and I don't know which day for you that would be, but a day aside where we would simply rest and worship and enjoy the Lord, free from the need to produce that we keep work from dominating our lives. It would keep our responsibilities from overwhelming us all the time. And maybe, just maybe, we'd find some peace that's been so elusive in our lives. There's something about what God established from the beginning that when we do it His way, it's a blessing. So He provided life and rest. And then and the third category I see here is companionship. He says in verse 18 of chapter 2, The Lord God said, it is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper as his complement. Not good for man to be alone. So he establishes this marriage relationship, this companionship. And at its heart, it is a companionship relationship. Certainly it has the fruit of producing children and populating the earth and so on. But at its core, it is meant to be a compliment. That is not a compliment as, hey, good job. That is a compliment as these go together. At weddings, I often mention all the things that were a benefit to Adam and Eve based upon their companionship and based upon what God provided for them. I mentioned things like they they were giving a, a meaningful experience. They were told to fill the earth. Greater meaning is there than seeing seeing the earth filled based upon what you're doing. They had a sense of adventure. They're told subdue the earth. 
That means there were parts of it that are going to be a little wild. A sense of adventure. Their, their relationship was blessed with pleasure. I mean, they're living in the Garden of Eden, for crying out loud. It's perfect. They also had companionship, God putting them together so they would not be alone. They experienced great intimacy physically, emotionally, both with God and with each other. God, it says in chapter 3, walked in the cool of the day in the garden. And they had all their needs met. God had provided all those things. God, in His role, provided life and rest and companionship. Why would we not want Him to rule if that's what He provides? And so what's our role? Well, first, to His rule, our role is to submit. Our role is to submit. This is hard. Because our Americanized view of life doesn't lend us to submission very often. But the truth is that only God is autonomous, answering to no one. Only God answers to no one. And He alone, because of that, deserves worship and obedience. We are to be submissive because only He is autonomous. We're also to submit to His commands. You realize the Word of God has implications for us, whether you believe it or not. He says, you may eat, you may not eat. He said, be fruitful, multiply, obey. Even in temptation, as we'll see next week, we are to submit to God's commands. What did God say? Don't eat from that tree. Why did He say it? Because I said not to. Was that arbitrary? Maybe. But guess what? God gets to rule. He gets to make the rules. They think it's arbitrary. Well, that's not fair. God doesn't care if it's fair. You ever tell your kids, well, life's not fair. Imagine God sitting up there saying, well, you know, it's not fair. We, should, we shouldn't be able to eat of this tree. I don't care if it's fair. I said, don't do it. There's a test of obedience. There's a test of loyalty. There's a test of submission in the Garden of Eden for Adam and Eve. Well, that's not fair. Who cares? What's oh, not fair? God could have said, oh, well, there's everything. Just do whatever you want to do. But God said, don't do that. There are things in our lives that you'll probably and I'll probably buck at because, you know what, I don't like that. I don't feel like God should have said that. Guess what? He doesn't care. He said not to do it. Or he said do these things. Listen, you and, and you all have told your kids, that you got a problem with that, you got a problem with God. I'm sorry. That's the way it is. But the truth is, and I'm not trying to be a smart aleck, but the truth is, when God has said something, even when we don't like it or we don't feel good about that, God still said it. And we are still to submit to his word. Even in temptation. You know what the temptation began with? Did God really say? I mean, did He really say this? And He's just holding out on it. It's just arbitrary. He doesn't really care about that. Guess what? God cares about what He has said. He cares. And it matters to Him. We are to submit. We are made in His image, the Bible tells us, but we are also under His authority. We are made in His image. We're unique. We are to represent His rule on the earth. And we are unique and special in that role. No other created being is made in His image. And we have dignity and status that is above every other created thing, but we are still under His authority and must submit. And being under His authority, our role is to submit and do it His way. All of life, not just parts. The tree in the middle of the garden, the one of knowledge of good and evil, was a reminder that God is God and we are not. And here's the boundary He set. The question was, Adam, Eve, are you going to obey God? Are you going to submit to God even when maybe you don't fully understand? Or you would do, will you do things your way? 
And the rebellion that's described in chapter 3 violated the love and the loyalty and the obedience and the trust that was to be at the heart of the relationship agreement. Our role, first, is to submit. And secondly, based upon God's provision, our role is to enjoy. Now, this is the part you don't hear a lot about. God is not a God who just says, well, you know what, do what, you, what you're supposed to do just because I said it. Well, there's part of that. But in a grander scheme, it's do what I've told you to do so that we can be an uninterrupted fellowship and you can enjoy all that I have provided for you. Enjoy what I've provided. God, in, in, in chapter 2, verse 25, look at it. It says, both the man and his wife were naked yet felt no shame. There's complete oneness. they got nothing to hide. Nothing to hide with God and themselves. There's oneness with God and each other. God wants us to enjoy oneness with Him and oneness in relationship. That's what He created from the beginning. I mentioned to you earlier about Sabbath rest. You realize you don't need to apologize if you take a day off? I'm terrible about this. I'll just be honest with you. I I feel like that if I'm not, you know, working, my car's not sitting over here and y'all don't drive by and see it, then I, you know, then I'm not doing anything. I'm not earning my money from the church. Listen, I struggle to take a day off. If you're like that, I get it. I fully understand. But you don't have to apologize for enjoying what God has provided and commanded that we enjoy in the first place. God blessed it, made it holy, and said, keep the Sabbath. You don't have to apologize. Jesus talked about it. When the Pharisees tried to make it a bunch of law, they tried to to regulate it, He just said, look, guys, just enjoy it. Sabbath was made for man, He says. For you to enjoy, it's a gift to be enjoyed, not to apologize for. It keeps work from dominating our lives. How many of you want to get to a certain point in life and say, man, I look back, I'm so proud that work dominated my life for 50 years. Man, I tell you what, what a great story to tell. What would you do for 50? All I did was go to work. I mean, seriously, who wants to say that? Anybody? No. You know what you want to say instead? You know what? Here's, here's what I did. This was the work that I did. It was meaningful work. I, I felt good about, about my effort there, and yet I was able to take the time that I wanted and needed to spend time worshiping the Lord, to spend time with my friends and my family, to enjoy going to the lake, to enjoy whatever it is that you like to do, playing golf, fishing, whatever it may be. Sabbath rest. And I wonder how much of our financial and mental and physical problems stem from the fact that we don't follow God's pattern at creation. And we're just worn out. God never said, work and work and work and just be worn out all the time and then put it on as a badge of honor and everybody's going to say, oh man, I tell you what, you're so great. You'd never take a day off. I'd encourage you, encourage myself. Like I said, this is a message for me. To set aside a day each week in which you worship the Lord and you rest a little and you play and you just enjoy life. Sabbath rest is something we are to enjoy. Not only Sabbath rest, but also labor, work. Look at verse 28 of chapter 1. God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, and subdue it. Rule the fish of the sea and the birds of the sky and every creature that crawls on the earth. Then look at chapter 2, verse 15. The Lord God took the man and placed him in the Garden of Eden to work it and watch over it. Now you realize, of course, this was before sin. So work is not a result of sin. Some of you might feel that way. What did I do to deserve this? <laughs> I hate my job. What am I doing? It was before sin. It, God set it up that we would have meaningful work before sin even touched the world. 
Do you realize that in paradise, the Garden of Eden before sin, there was work to be done? Meaningful work. God ordained, God blessed work. Work is not something that you should say, well, boy, I tell you what, I hate it. Maybe you hate it because we haven't approached it God's way. Meaningful work, and I'll be honest with you, it's good to work hard. Young people, I know that people get on you all the time. Oh, young people these days, listen, they said the same thing about your parents and grandparents. The same. Don't tell them I said that. They said they were lazy, they didn't want to do nothing. We just don't like to admit that, okay? But, but listen, there is something that God blesses when you work hard at whatever it is you're doing. And I don't care what it is, whether it's schoolwork or you're playing a sport or you're working in the yard or you're trying to earn some kind of spending money, work hard. God blesses it. He likes it when you work hard and put yourself into it and do the very best that you can. When you represent God in your work ethic, no matter what kind of work you do, you're going back to where it says the Lord God placed him in the garden to work it and watch over it. You're fulfilling those commands. And I'll be honest with you, your work doesn't have to change the world to be meaningful. Some of us are still looking, what is it that I'm supposed to do that's going to change the world? We're sold this lie that one day you'll grow up, you can be anything you want to. Oh, you can't. I can't play in the NBA. I'm five foot eight. I can't jump. I can't shoot. I'm not a good dribbler, and I can't play any defense. I cannot play in the National Basketball Association. That was a lie that they told me. I also grew up thinking I was going to be a Major League Baseball player, and yet I'm 5'8", I can't run fast, and I wasn't good enough to hit and throw and all that stuff. I can't do anything I want to, but guess what? I don't have to change the world in order for my work to be meaningful. There may not be anybody one day who knows my name. I may not be inducted into the Southern Baptist Convention Hall of Fame if there is such a thing. But listen... Just because I don't get recognized far and wide and you don't get recognized far and wide and your work may seem menial instead of meaningful doesn't mean that God isn't blessing it. And it's only after meaningful labor that you can have meaningful rest. And then thirdly, God provided for us to enjoy companionship and he he establishes marriage. Look at verse 18 of chapter 2. The Lord God said, It's not good for man to be alone. I will make a helper as his compliment. So the Lord God formed out of the ground every wild animal and every bird of the sky and brought each to the man to see what he would call it. And whatever the man called the living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all the livestock, to the birds of the sky, and to every wild animal. But for the man, no helper was found as his compliment. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to come over the man, and he slept. God took one of his ribs and closed the flesh at that place. Then the Lord God made the rib that he had taken from the man into a woman and brought her to the man. And the man said, this, by the way, fellas, this is poetry. The first thing the guy said when he saw the woman was poetry. No pressure. This one at last is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. This will be called woman for she was taken from man. This is why man leaves his father and mother and bonds with his wife and they become one flesh. The original creational origin of marriage has some far-reaching implications as we see it. Marriage was to be one of of oneness, a oneness-based relationship between husband and wife. The goal, by the way, is not to find a soulmate that makes you happy. You tried that? Some of you have been married a while now, and that soulmate just, just irritates you all the time. I mean, to no end. You know what I'm talking about. 
Y'all are laughing. You'll get yourself in trouble when you leave. They irritate you all. You're my soulmate. Just shut up. I don't want to be your soulmate today. You're on my nerves. Take out the trash. You know, brush your teeth, will you? I mean, you know how it goes. Listen, if you're looking for a soulmate, you're in trouble. You know what a soulmate is? It's my design. It's what I want. It's who I want. Somebody's going to serve me and make me happy all the time. Instead, look for somebody with whom, if you're an unmarried person and you want to be married, look for someone with whom you can build a biblical marriage based on God's desire for oneness. That doesn't mean perfection. That doesn't mean a soulmate. That means I've identified a person that with whom I can have a biblical marriage. They're tracking toward Jesus just the way I am. And we can build something biblical. Because guess what? The soulmate thing runs out. And all the lovey-dovey stuff, that's over quick, ain't it? It's over quick. I've been married now going on 17 years, and I love my wife dearly, but there are times when we just irritate each other to no end. Now, probably me doing that to her more than, than she does. And she's not here, so I can't really pick on her. But, but young people, listen to me. The patterns that you're establishing now and who you're pursuing aren't going to go away. And whoever it is that you're pursuing now and the kinds of folks you're pursuing, one of these days you're going to marry one of those folks. Odds are you're going to marry the kind of person you're pursuing and allowing to pursue you. And if it's not a person that you can build a biblical marriage with. And I, I, you talk with your parents and you, you, you guys figure out how it is you need to be led in this direction. But if it's not a person that you can build a biblical marriage with, then you're on the wrong track. It's time to turn around. And you, you hear that however you want to. The old guy who's bald wants to stand and tell you what to do, that's fine. But hear it from God's word out of his love and his concern for you because God has something better for you. He's got a biblical marriage for you that he wants to build in oneness and he wants to bless. And unless you're tracking down that path, you are going to quickly find yourself out of God's will without the blessing and on a train wreck experience. Those who are nearly married, we got some. I've done some premarital counseling. And I always just tell them, you know, hey, they, they want it. They, it. It's interesting in premarital counseling. They all just want to act like everything's great. The best foot forward right now, listen, it's as good as it's ever going to get. They're trying to impress you. They're trying to put on a good show. And then you're going to wake up one day with the bed head and the morning breath and all the stuff. And it, 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 it's the best it's going to get right now. Just understand that. Prepare for a biblical marriage. And for those who are in the early stages of marriage, honeymoon phase is still there. Oh, it's so great. Listen, I don't mean to be cynical. But if you're basing your marriage on the honeymoon phase, what will it be 15, 20 years from now? Will you have anything that will last? And if you've been married a while, let me encourage you, get back to God's design for oneness. Pursue one another. Get back to what He wants. Serve one another. Submit to one another, Ephesians says, out of love for Jesus Christ. Marriage is a great gift from God to be enjoyed. God provides all those things when we do it His way. We can enjoy oneness, Sabbath rest, even our labor and marriage relationships. When we do it God's way. God's way is clear from the beginning for marriage, by the way. It's one man and one woman in covenant relationship 
to be separated only by death. And that's why God hates divorce, because it mars and it, and it messes up His original design. And that's why there's no way, without some real mental and what they would call hermeneutical gymnastics, there's no way to make a biblical case for homosexual marriage. There's no way. Because it messes up God's original design. Look in Genesis. That's what He wants it to be. It's only one from each of the different kinds that can come together and make one flesh and be blessed by God. We can enjoy Sabbath rest and labor and marriage, but only when it's done God's way. At creation and all the way through Scripture, I will be your God, you will be my people. And He gave the sign of the covenant, and that was their innocence, their nakedness. They had nothing to hide from God. Nothing to hide from one another. The perfect will of God. I will be your God. Now, I'll be honest with you. There's a couple things about that as we close. God has not changed. He's been faithful to His part of the deal. He's always been our God. And our obligation has not changed to submit, to enjoy. Based upon the fact that we've all been created by God, all humans are under this covenant to be God's people, to submit to Him. God has been faithful, but we have not. No longer do we stand before Him with nothing to hide, do we? No longer do we stand with no fear. No longer do we stand before one another knowing we haven't sinned against each other. We've not acknowledged His rule in every area of life. We've not submitted to His Word. We've not made ourselves under His authority. We've become, in our words, autonomous. We've not given Him alone our worship. And we see that from Genesis 3 all the way to the present day. There's something wrong with the world now, isn't there? It's not like Genesis 1 and 2. Something has changed, and we're the problem. The bad news is that it is an unfixable problem for us. We can't do anything about it. We have violated the covenant. God said, I'll be your God. He's kept up his part. We were to be his people. We dropped the ball. We sinned. The rest of the story, however, finishes strong. That God himself made up for our failures. God himself took the punishment and the curses of the covenant on himself when Jesus died on the cross. You can't make up for your sin. There's a clear path now to being made right with God, and his name is Jesus Christ and him alone. And our response this morning, all I want to call you to is a response of repentance, of belief, and of submission. This morning, what do you need to do in response to the fact that God rules and God provides? Is it to repent and say, Lord, I've I've not submitted? Is it to, to believe in Him? Lord, I believe in Your salvation and Yours alone. You are the only God to be worshipped. Is it to submit to His way for your life? Let's pray together. As we close this morning, I... I hope that you would consider